This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by, well, hold on a second, in honor of our guy, Franklin Coley, and his lovely wife, Dawn, who welcomed their first child last week. Uh, this episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Franklin Coley Catering. What's on the table here, Joe Kefauver? Well, first of all, what's on the table is a camouflage tablecloth to start with, but with... It's an appropriate honor. It is, it is, but there are copious amounts of beef jerky, Velveeta, turducken, and of course, for desserts and moon pies. Oh, Joe Renzel, I'm so sorry you're stuck in the bubble and can't take part in this feast. Hey, don't worry about me. I found this bag of Funyuns that Franklin left on my desk last week, and uh, I'm just going to dive into that. It's going to be great. Nothing says Franklin like a bag of Funyuns. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, restaurant and retail operators pick up the pieces after Hurricane Harvey's historic devastation. What's next for all the employees now out of a job? And is there a storm of criticism ahead? We'll analyze the opportunities and challenges. This week's legislative scorecard has news on the Trump administration's plan to end the Obama-era equal pay data collection rule. Plus, we're keeping a close eye on Missouri, where new developments on efforts to increase the minimum wage could be modeled in other parts of the country. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Kelly, alongside Align Partners Joe Kefauver here in Florida and Joe Rinzel in the D.C. bubble. Franklin Coley is home with his new daughter, so congratulations to him. Of course, we'll miss his input, as I'm sure the Kid Rock for Senator campaign will as well. Perhaps we'll get a call from him later. Okay, so Joe Renzel and Joe Kefauver, in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, we want to talk about a couple different things. One, the opportunity for operators to really shine in a moment where there is so much need, but also the challenges ahead. So first, let's talk about how operators, restaurants and retailers in particular, are responding to this storm and why this really does give them an opportunity um, to build some relationships, uh, especially in this area. Joe Kefauver, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, you know, the restaurant, restaurants and convenience stores and small business retailers and, you know, are all, they're all main, main street businesses. They're involved in the community. They're good neighbors and good friends. And, and these times of, of peril like this, we've seen different storms and hurricanes, Sandy, Katrina, you know, provide uh, a real lens on and a spotlight on the role that these guys play in their communities. And so they're always looking for opportunities to step up and help. Um, you know, the, the, the Hurricane Harvey, you know, the place is underwater, so it's, it's a little harder logistically to get to people and provide the kind of help we usually uh, do. But these industries are trying to do the right thing. And so, you know, kudos to them. And they're always doing the right thing. They just don't have the microscope on them that they do during times like this. I think the important thing is is what is the challenges after the storm and, and what, what, comes, what comes next. I mean, you think about a scenario where restaurants or small businesses are going to be closed for a long time. I mean, that, some of these places are underwater. They're going to have to be scraped and rebuilt. So you're talking about an hourly workforce that is going to be out of work and there's no work around. The whole place is underwater. And so that provides all kinds of reputational challenges. How is a, a small business owner or a franchisee going to going to handle that? Are they going to, you know, find the resources to 
figure out some way to keep some of these people with some level of income during this time of duress? Are they going to be able to do that? Um, are, are they are they in compliance with with standards around this kind of stuff? And so I think it's it's a time where, on the one hand, you're looking for opportunities to help, but we also got to look for opportunities to make sure we're being smart in terms of you know how we're talking to our employees how we're staying connected to them how we can help when a time when they're out they're out of a job they're out they have no income stream right now and and we want to make sure employers are are doing the right thing in that space Joe Renzo, let me get your take on both. One of the points I've heard you mentioned is how good retail operators in particular are good with the logistics uh, during a crisis like this. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Give us your perspective there uh, in addition to the challenges that they're going to face as well. Yeah, and I think uh, you know the challenges Kefauver was walking through are the same that face retail as well, right? These are community entities. They have, you know, folks that, that work for them and in their businesses and, and the stores that they operate, you know, are under duress right now. And so they, they're taking that very seriously too, I know. Um, one of the things that I always, you know, see when, when, these, when these issues come up is, you know, retail, when it boils down to it, the good ones are, you know, advanced logistics companies. They know how to get products to market. Uh, and they have kind of perfected that over time as they've had the experiences in Katrina and Sandy and others, you know, they're, they're now, you know, really thinking through in the advanced notice of these storms, you know, placing a lot of products, whether it's just simplicities like water, baby food, you know, other necessities, um, placing them outside of the, the zone, the danger zone, and then being ready to roll in, uh, you know, on day one after the storm. Um, you know, those are things that, a lot of time, effort, and energy, and planning goes into, and and just you know, kudos to the industry for being able to lead in that effort and, and provide you know the necessities to these folks that are just going through a, a horrible time right now. One, one of the other one of the other things they do really well, Joe, and, and it, it takes a lot of pre-planning work and coordination with state agencies. You know, long before these kinds of disasters take place, people people forget about the pharmaceutical piece, and 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 what happens to people that are on medications and need that. And so, you know, you think about the, the Walmarts and the Walgreens and the Targets and the CVSs of the world, you know, our, our work with state agencies so that there's, a, that there's a as quick as possible way to get the medicines people need to the people that need it. And so that's a big piece that goes into this planning. There's a media relations component to all of this. Uh, if, if operators don't step up, at some point, the media that is on the ground there that first cover the storm, then cover the aftermath. They'll start to cover insurance claims, how FEMA's responding, how government agencies are responding. Sooner or later, they get tired of that, and they start to figure out what else are people struggling with? What else are people complaining about? So if these operators don't step up, they may have a communications problem on their hand as well. Yeah, and part of that will be what I was talking about earlier is, you know, are these displaced workers what's 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 their disposition what, what what's happening to them are 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 the, especially the larger companies are they affording those same workers opportunities in other parts of their chains and other jurisdictions you know are they saying hey we'll 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 take 20 of you and, and take you to Albuquerque or whatever that may be you know we we that's where the media scrutiny will go once the water ebbs and 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 how are companies responding 
internally to this stuff. And so that that'll be a, that'll be a big issue. And of course, you know, like there'll be all kinds of you know fly by night contractors looking to rebuild restaurants and retail. There's going to be a cottage industry of trial lawyers driving around as well, looking for problems and hiccups and infractions. And so you know, yes, there's the cleanup work. There's getting your operations back up and running, which is priority one for these companies. They've got to get these places up and running, get these people back to work. But there is a whole host of challenges down the road that they've got to be dialed into, sensitive to, and making sure they're being pol- small p politically, but but smart and not tone deaf to, to what those challenges are and, and, and the scrutiny they're going to get. All right, let's shift gears away from Texas, away from uh, the hurricane aftermath, and get to some of the regulation uh, updates we have from this week. And Joe Renzel, I'll kick it over to you in the bubble. Uh, what do we have out of Washington, D.C.? Yeah, there's a couple things that happened uh, this week that are of interest to operators You know, in that regulatory space, uh, particularly around the overtime rule. Folks will remember that in the Obama era overtime rule, they increased that salary threshold significantly. Um, that had been kind of put on pause as a case was moving through the courts uh, brought by the, some of the business community. Um, this week, the, the judge in that case um, basically killed that, that rule. Um, so they'll be, they'll be in a start over kind of situation as it relates to overtime. So that's probably good news for operators. Um, the, the second one was a, a policy coming out of the Equal Employment Opportunity Agency um, talk, asking for pay data associated with race, gender, ethnicity. Um, that was something that I think the business community was looking at as pretty onerous, uh, and that's been um, put on pause by the administration. So kind of under the um, idea that there's just so much chaos going on, we talk about it in the bubble all the time, uh, we talk about it on this pod, uh, but there are still some good things happening on the regulatory front. Um, but, the, you know, I think the important note of wariness is the clock is ticking. You know, we've, we've got a, a limited number of, t- of days of legislative activity in the fall here and into the winter. Um, there's still some pretty notable issues like the CEO pay disclosure issue um, that's still on the table, uh, still in effect, and the administration hasn't opined on it yet, and, and we don't know where that's going to end up. And, and for operators, th- this one applies to uh, publicly sale companies. They have to um, comply with that and start submitting that data relatively soon. So, you know, some good news and then, you know, a note of caution moving into the fall and winter. Yeah, and I think I think the, the other the other learning, the other takeaway is you step back a minute, you know, we th- these industries, retail and convenience store and restaurant, we're so used to making our voice heard and our opinions known at the legislative congressional level. And for a lot of folks, this agency regulatory level has always been a little little more distant, a little harder to navigate. But there's some real opportunities. You know, the, legis- the, 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 the legislative process may be log jammed, but the regulatory process is moving. And there's some real opportunities, I think, for companies, for brands to lend their expertise and their real-world operational know-how to this decision-making process. And so, you know, my admonition to those folks would be engage as aggressively as you can at the regulatory level because there's a lot happening and a lot of good things can happen if you're engaged there. Just to get back and, and highlight one of the one of the points that we made regarding the Obama era rule on gender gap wage data collection and the fact that that's going away, I think one of the parts that's interesting about that is we didn't really know which way that was going to go because Ivanka Trump was clearly in her father's ear months ago 
uh, and we were having a difficult time weighing how much of an influence she had, and now all of a sudden she supports this thing going away. But Ivanka got trumped. (laughs) But going forward, going forward, this is something that's going to come up again. It's not like this goes away. Yeah, I mean, it's it's essentially kicking the can down the road a little bit. I mean, you know, I've talked about this a hundred times. It's like, yeah, we have. We have victories as an industry when it comes to, to litigation and regulation and legislation, but we continue to lose the conversation. And we're losing, we, we're losing the conversation on this issue faster than we know. And just because this administration may not do X, Y, Z in this space today, it, it's, it's a matter of time. So, you know, at the end of the day, in five, 10 years, we'll be at a very different place on this issue, no matter how many of these little regulatory hiccups do or do not happen along the way. That's got to be Franklin calling in with his analysis now. Go ahead, caller. You're on the air. Well, that sounds like Franklin has his hands full. We'll try to reconnect with him soon. It feels like we have now a weekly segment on big companies partnering with other very big companies to become disruptors in commerce and how everybody's going to go about doing business. This particular week, oh, let me quick backtrack. There was Amazon and Whole Foods, Google and Walmart. This week, we've got Domino's and Ford. Joe Renzel, what's happening? It's like reruns of The Bachelor. Everybody's just pairing up. And... <laughs> Who gets a rose? <laughs> Renzel, you're so rosy. <laughs> Why don't you update us? What's going on with Domino's and Ford? Yeah, so Domino's uh, Pizza Delivery up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, has partnered with another iconic national brand, Ford. Uh, to provide uh, their experimenting in driverless delivery. Um, and I think that's, you know, talk part of, you know, these brands that are out there and they're leaning forward. They're looking towards the future. They're understanding that there's going to be a different um, kind of disruptor attitude within their industry. And they're trying uh, to find different ways to accommodate that and, and look forward. You know, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There's that kind of future conversation and the ability to embrace a, a new economy. Um, but then there's also those reputational challenges that come with that. As a former uh, Domino's delivery driver, uh, I'm wondering what uh, what that hap- what happens to the workforce as it relates to that. But I think there are opportunities in that um, in terms of the job training that would go into kind of being able to operate those from a technological standpoint and the skill set involved in there. So um, it's good to see these kind of brands uh, being experimenting and, and understanding that they're you know they're either going to be the disruptor or the disrupted. Uh, and choosing which side you're on is probably important for your, your future longevity. Renzo, I, I too am a recovering Domino's <laughs> delivery driver from a previous oh, I life. I you were Pizza Hut. No, I was Domino's. <laughs> it was in the days of the stagecoach. But, I, you know, I think the interesting thing is you don't have to tip a driverless. Think of all the money you're gonna, Renzo's going to save on tips. That's true. That's true. There's always benefits. Time for the legislative scorecard. These are the top items affecting business operators around the country. As always, we begin with wages. Joe Kefauver, what's the news out of Arizona? Yeah, so a bit of a bit of a, um, a loss in Arizona this week. We've had a, um, a preemption bill that that was passed in 2016. It's been tied up in litigation um, ever since, it seems. And um, judge ruled this week that basically um, that that preemption law is, is, has been nullified because it conflicts with a previous law that talked about if if the legislature was going to override a voter-passed law, they had to have a three-quarters majority. This preemption law 
that that uh, limited localities' ability to have their own wage and benefit laws did not pass by that margin. So the, the judge basically said that preemption law in 2016 is null and void. But there's more litigation to come, so it's not a. But bottom line is. You know, the industry kind of lost a court case in Arizona on that wage issue. And boy, this next one feels like it's taken forever to work itself out. What's happening in Illinois with minimum wage? Yeah, the governor actually finally vetoed it. You know, we thought two months ago he was going to veto it. Uh, didn't have, uh, we, we assumed he would, but, you know, they were playing pretty close. Um, but he finally did veto the, 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 the bill to raise the minimum wage by $15 an hour. It's unclear and unlikely whether Democrats have the votes to go override that. You know, there's a lot of going on in the, the state of Illinois with, with minimum wage. Chicago has its own um, uh, wage. It's going to go to $13 an hour by 2019. Cook County passed a $15 wage last year, although 80% of the, the cities and municipalities inside Cook County have opted out. So it still is a hotbed of activity. It remains to be seen whether the Democrats in the, at the legislative level come back and try to override that veto. Back over to the bubble with an update on federal paid leave. Renzel? Yeah, we're looking at some rumors that have been circulating that potentially uh, in, in September, once uh, Congress returns next week from the August recess, that you might see this Republican-sponsored national paid leave measure. Uh, this is something that some of the HR associations in D.C. have been vetting for a good you know, year or two now with, with other employer organizations, trying to set up uh, some sort of federal uh, law that would you know, provide some safe harbor for companies that operate across state lines um, from state and local requirements associated with uh, paid leave, provided that they're offering a certain level of paid leave themselves, which, you know, the majority of employers are. Um, So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I talked earlier about the limited time that Congress has in legislative days before you get into the election run next year. Um, we'll see. I know we've we've talked about it before, though. This is something that could potentially cross the aisle, um, but there's just so much chaos and challenges from a political sense that it's hard to see uh, folks uniting on an issue like this. Um, but it, it definitely would have an uphill climb. Um, but it'd be notable if it got introduced by Republicans, that's for sure. There'll be some, some photo ops and some heads nodding, but somehow it'll miraculously run out of time. To me, this has almost zero chance. Let's go back over to Illinois, pay equity. Another veto from the governor? Governor had a big veto pen this week, yeah. So the labor community, you know, he's up for re-election. And in Illinois, taking on the labor community, vetoed the minimum wage. And now he's vetoed a, a pay equity uh, bill that would have banned uh, employers from asking job applicants about their salary history and past salaries. And they couldn't use past salary history as a factor in, in, in hiring. Uh, so two, two um, politically... Um, significant, potentially politically risky vetoes out of the governor of Illinois this week. Late last week, uh, right after we were recording this podcast, we had some news out of New York and a federal court case there involving menu labeling. Joe Renzel? Yeah, good news and and a nice big win for the National Association of Convenience Stores and the Restaurant Association, among some others. The city announced an agreement to postpone the implementation of the menu labeling law that was in New York City. Uh, They're going to defer to the enactment dates at the federal level, uh, and that law goes into effect on May 7th. So you got some uniform, May 7th, 2018. So you got some uh, nice uniformity there on the menu labeling issue, uh, kind of preventing locals from getting out ahead of the federal. Uh, So that's good news for operators. We've got a development dealing with joint employer out of the U.S. House. A committee has tentatively scheduled a hearing. Renzel, what's that about? 
Yeah, I mean, this is the next step in the legislative process. You know, they got uh, is a big issue for for operators across the country. Um, you've got the legislation that was introduced um, earlier this summer, uh, and now you've got some legislative activity in terms of hearings and whatnot. They they still got a hill, a steep hill to climb, I think, in terms of process. Um, you know, it should clear the House committee certainly, and 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 likely would get enough support in the House. The Republican-controlled House, but then they're going to flip over to the Senate side, um, and you know they'll have to kind of reach across the aisle on on a labor issue, uh, and so it remains to be seen how far they can go with that. But I know the business community is working pretty hard. Big priority for for our guys uh, here in D.C. and across the country. Yeah, I think politically, you know, with with so many Democrat senators up for reelection in 2018 in, in Trump states, you know, this is going to be a hard one for some of them to to. To lay off of, they're they're going to be very tempted to support this, and so politically, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. There's a lot of politics involved in this joint employer issue. We interrupt the podcast for kind of a special moment around the Align office. We've gathered everyone in the room. We've got Michelle, Marjorie, Rachel, Natalie, Carson's here. Joe Kefauver is still here, and Joe Renzel's on the line. We just have a quick couple of questions for you. As you know, we're honoring Franklin Coley and his wife. Um, Their first baby arrived last week. And the question we have around the office is this. What is the over-under on how many diapers Franklin will change in the next month? Michelle, go. I'm going to say one. Kefauver? Two. Marjorie? Two. Rachel? One. Natalie? I'll be nice and say ten. Ten. Carson? Zero. Zero. I'm going to go with zero as well. Hold on. I want to change my answer. I think he will change one, and he will be in therapy for the rest of his life because of it. Normally, this would be a part of the show when Franklin Coley mentioned the, what does he say, mess, mess in Missouri, or is yes. it kerfuffle? He likes to say kerfuffle. It now. is interesting to listen all to about the kerfuffle. kerfuffle yeah. Yeah. Could have avoided this little kerfuffle. <laughs> anyway, we've got some news out of Missouri that's important. So, Joe Keefe, I want you to update us. Yeah, and it's, it's 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 not only about Missouri; it's about what how the lessons learned there can be you know extrapolated across the country. But it's a ballot initiative process underway in Missouri, as, as there are in a bunch of states, uh, to raise the minimum wage. You know, we've been battling you know having this minimum wage argument in Missouri for two years now. Potential ballot initiative to go to twelve dollars an hour by twenty twenty three. A much more modest increase level and a much more stretched out effective date model. And, you know, that that type of marginal approach is overwhelmingly likely to be successful at the ballot box. And it, it puts operators and the, the business community in a tough spot. You know, think about, um, you know, politically, or, or, or they have to make a decision about marshalling their resources for a, a, a mandated wage that isn't much above what the market is calling for now, and certainly will look a, a lot like what the market will be in 2023. So it, and it's you know in this game of chess, you know a, 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 more, a more modest increase over a longer time period is a strong move by the labor community that puts the business community in a tough position. And so is the business community going to raise? Going to be able to raise the five million, ten million dollars it's going to take to fight on that ballot initiative when? A lot of the actuaries and financial people will say, we're going to be there anyway, you know, blah, blah, blah. So smart move by the labor community. If they are that smart in other parts of the country, you can really change the dynamic of the conversation. You've seen a couple other similar things, right? You had a negotiation down from 15 or 13 down a little bit lower up in Rhode Island. 
Uh, you've got the group La Raza here, um, you know, a national group that's, you know, very liberal, a lot of ties to labor. Um, they had a platform, you know, decision earlier this year that put it at $12. Um, so you kind of see a couple, you know, different pieces across the board where they're looking for that more moderate uh, wage amount. Um, and to Joe's point, you know, I think it's a smart strategic move and we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, we've said many times they started their campaign as the fight for 12. That had been successful long ago, but they went for fight for 15 and, you know, because it's a little sexier and whatnot. But and it was kind of a bridge too far. If they'd been fight for 12, we would. We wouldn't even remember this conversation. Speaking of Fight for 15, we've got Labor Day weekend coming up. Um, as we've been reporting, not a whole lot in the way of protests expected, but we'll certainly be monitoring those. Um, perhaps between diaper changes, if that even exists in Franklin's life, he'll be he'll be <laughs> glued to figuring out where these protests are taking place. I, I think with all that's going on, especially with the hurricane um, uh, aftermath, which is still absorbing 24-7 media coverage. You know, these these events, you know, to the extent there are rallies and forums talking about the, the, the importance of the labor movement, the importance of labor unions, and how those transition into actual conversations about issues important to that community, wage, wage stagnation, pay equity. You know, th- over time, over the last few years, those, those, those um, um, events have continued not to underperform. Right, and I would be—I would say that they're probably going to underperform even more this year, just because the the the, the air is running out of that balloon a little bit, and we got this other massive hurricane coverage going on. So, be interesting to see what happens. That's all for this episode of the Working Lunch Podcast. Have a relaxing and safe holiday weekend. We'll talk to you again next week.